This is Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land and water. I'm Glenn Wheeler. back in the Mi'kmaq Matter studio after being off for a few weeks, some downtime and reflection, and we're back here dusting off the microphones and warming up the equipment for another year. It's good to be back. This week we're looking back and looking forward to uh, what uh, the last year brought us, what the next year might bring. Will there be powwows in 2022? Virgil First Nation has just announced a Mauiomi for August the 6th, COVID allowing, according to Chief Elaine Ingram. So, fingers crossed. Hope that can happen. The thing about uh, the current moment is that we appreciate the things we take for granted when we can't have them, like powwows, being able to visit friends and family, get together for events, ceremony. So, hope you're all doing well. And hopefully we're turning the corner and 2022 will be a good year. Let's begin our look around Mi'kma'ki, starting with the largest of the Mi'kmaq First Nations, Halibu. On the island of Newfoundland, there are two Mi'kmaq First Nations, and Halibu has communities from the southwest of the island, all the way up to the uh, northeast, covering most of the island of uh, so-called Newfoundland. And, of course, in pre-contact times, uh, Mi'kmaq traveled, lived in practically all of the island, uh, right over to the to the east coast. So a bit of background there. Halibu has a new council, elected last October, sworn in and meeting in the first regular council meeting on January 22nd by Zoom and uh, available to Halibu members uh, via live stream on the GUNU uh, part of the Halibu website. There are six new members of council, four women, and we're hoping for good things. We're hoping for a much different council than last time, more involvement, more discussion, more questioning, more thoughts, and uh, just a a generally more high-functioning council than we had uh, last time. More involvement, less seat warming. And this seems like a good chance uh, to mention the comprehensive community plan that came out from Alibu late in the year. It's a guide to the development of the band based on member consultation and their dreams and aspiration for their First Nation band. You can find it online, and it's worth uh, reading. There's some good work there. Uh, Kudos to Samantha Gardner for pulling it together. To some extent, it was uh, an orphan. An orphan that she was given to look after after the senior leaders in the uh, in the organization left 
part of the leadership churn, uh, a, a sort of um, revolving door of senior leadership that has afflicted uh, Halibu in the last couple of years. So Samantha Gardner took it over and she has produced, uh, she has coordinated the production of this comprehensive community plan and uh, uh, recommended for your uh, for your reader uh, to read there, available on the website, uh, Halibu Comprehensive Community Plan. There's uh, some candid discussion of the weaknesses in the band. It uh, has, uh, it says uh, in that section, there is a failure to follow up on implementation of plans and strategies. And of course, we know a lot about that after having viewed the uh, council meetings for the last uh, three years. Uh, it does mention significant changes in the staffing model, departures, and limited ability to have input. Uh, part of the uh, the leadership uh, vacuum that we've commented on. And it talks about a lack of coordination and collaboration with local grassroots organizations. And one, uh, we can read between the lines there. <clears throat> we have talked about over the last uh, couple of uh, couple of years, the, uh, the kind of freezing out almost of community bands that do so much work on the ground uh, in Mi'kmaq communities, but have been ignored by by Halibu. So it's good to see um, to see the problem named uh, at least because if you don't name the problem, it's hard to deal with it. And under threats, it talks about a perception of corporatization of the Halibu First Nation, where priority is placed over organizational infrastructure and branded presence than creating a space for meaning member engagement. I think what's that saying is that um, there's a lot of, um, that uh, Halibu behaves like a commercial company with its brand, with its logos, but in terms of the ability of Mi'kmaq people to have a meaningful involvement in their band, not so much. No, few meetings with uh, between ward councillors and their members uh, not much uptake on um, on input from um, from the membership. So it's uh, it's good to see the candid uh, comments there. One disappointing uh, part of the comprehensive community plan is the uh, almost uh, contradictory uh, material on rights on treaty rights, whether we have them or we don't. One very good part of the plan is the review of history, the history of Mi'kmaq in Newfoundland leading up to the development of Halibu and the events over the last 10 years of the life of Halibu. And um, it does mention in the history section uh, that Halibu, uh, that uh, Mi'kmaq people traveled across the region from the Magdalen Islands to Saint-Pierre. It was one uh, entity. It was the, that was the, that was the homeland of the Mi'kmaq people. Uh, the uh, report also talks about the, the mercenary myth, that story that students in 
Newfoundland schools were fed so long about the Mi'kmaq having been brought in to kill to kill off the Beothic for the benefit of the uh, of the colonial settlers that Mi'kmaq were newcomers to Newfoundland and only came there on the European boats. And as the report says, this has been debunked by history, not true, and that uh, there is pre-contact um, uh, history uh, of Mi'kmaq in, in Newfoundland. But despite all that, when it comes to talking about land and resources, the report says that and it's very strange because it seems to be saying two things. It says, as Mi'kmaq of Katumkuk, the Mi'kmaq word for Newfoundland, we are not entitled to any treaty rights. Well, that's a very bald statement uh, considering the peace and friendship treaties that are relied on by Mi'kmaq people in all the other parts of, uh, of the region. And then it goes on to say, it is important that Halibu continue to work with the government towards gaining hunting and fishing rights for membership. So on the one hand, uh, there are no treaty rights, but we should be fighting for these rights. So uh, we're unlikely to get any rights if we admit defeat on the matter of, uh, of whether we do come under the Peace and Friendship Treaties, as many knowledgeable people think we do, and also, not having done the archaeological research, what can be found out in the Bay St. George area, the likely uh, landing place with Mi'kmaq people uh, crossed uh, the big water there, the Gulf of St. Lawrence, uh, between Cape Breton, Unamagi, and, uh, and the island. Um, so, uh, disappointing uh, continuation of the defeatism of this uh, council where it uh, raises the white flag gives up on any assertion of rights without, um, without uh, having, uh, having checked to see what case we can bring to, uh, to argue for rights of, uh, of members of, of Halibu. So that's the discussion we'll have to continue, but um, hopefully this new council will have more of a Mi'kmaq orientation to the world and less like a government uh, bureaucracy that uh, that accepts uh, what the uh, what they're told by uh, by Ottawa without um, without talking back. And uh, we're looking forward to that new orientation on this council. That's one of the things that we heard from uh, Jenny Brake, the new Western Vice Chief, who on episode 188 talked about the kind of organization that Halibut has become, a, in her words, a, a colonial uh, outfit without uh, the feeling of being a First Nation. And she talked about some of the changes that uh, we need at Halibut. And here's a, a snippet of what she said. I feel that um, there's a, a bit of a coldness when you walk into the band office. You know, and I know COVID has put many restrictions on, you know, the comings and goings of people. And they've done a wonderful job of keeping everybody safe. But I feel like our band office has a, more of like a, a feeling of, say, like an accounting firm or, you know, like it's it doesn't when I walk in, I don't feel like I'm walking into a culturally welcoming space where I see my own self reflected, you know, and I, I would love to see more of that and see 
a more openness to community happening. I'm sure that will happen when restrictions loosen up with COVID. I, I really do hope so. But I think we need to engage all those amazing local artists that we have and, and put some color in there and make it make people feel really excited to walk in and know that it's a part of their own culture. That was Jenny Brake, the new Western Vice Chief for Halibut First Nation. Meanwhile, in Miopigeg, the other First Nation on the island, it was an eventful year for our cousins at Miopigeg. It was part of the Mi'kmaq Coalition that purchased the Clearwater Seafood Company. Big news, of course, um, when that happened, uh, promoted as a kind of reconciliation. Uh, the fact that uh, Mi'kmaq people would now own this uh, mega seafood company with um, with uh, business um, internationally. If you uh, order lobster in uh, in Boston, chances are it comes uh, via Clearwater. So, a very big deal. A uh, lesser covered story was the purchase of uh, the Exploits Motel by Miobigeg. That's the motel uh, near the turnoff from the Trans-Canada to the Betaspare Highway to Miobigeg, uh, Con River, and places on the south coast. Uh, the band will be renovating the motel and uh, and also, there's talk of a future urban reserve on that location. So that will be very good news indeed, uh, both for um, not only for members of Miobigeg, but uh, members of Halibut who now have to uh, have their vehicles, their new vehicles, uh, driven all the way to um, to uh, to Con River to uh, be able to. Um, uh, claim uh, or avoid paying the uh, the sales tax that would ordinarily apply to those uh, to those new vehicles. So we'll be waiting uh, to see what happens with that. And this is election year in Miobigeg. You know, June 2022 is when members of the band will go to the polls, and will Mazel Joe run again for chief and if he does will he be elected we'll be uh, we'll be watching to see for that he's popular with the newfoundland news media but there are more mixed feelings toward mazelle joe at home complaints about lack of transparency about the clearwater deal about the exploits deal and so many other commercial deals and there are concerns about the, what some regard as the inordinate influence of counselor and man of many hats, Shane McDonald. And a feeling that uh, it's actually Shane McDonald who runs uh, the band rather than Chief Mazel Joe. There's that. And there are also the fish farms supported 100% by Mazel Joe and in which the band has commercial interests. But fish farms are also a factor in the near demise of the wild Atlantic salmon on the south coast, near extinction in Con River itself. 
The experts are pretty unanimous that fish farms are a factor, not the only factor, but a factor in the sad state of uh, the wild Atlantic salmon on the south coast. The, the wild salmon have to swim past the pens and they pick up the infections and are exposed to the toxins that plague such operations. And then we have the interbreeding of wild salmon and escaped farm salmon and the production of mutant fish. You heard about many of these things on uh, on Mi'kmaq Matters on episodes one, uh, 174 and 179, where we talked to uh, officials from uh, from DFO. Uh, here's uh, DFO biologist uh, Nick Kelly. When you look at the scientific literature, there's over two decades of research spanning the North Atlantic, so both sides of the North Atlantic, that have documented negative impacts of net pen aquaculture on wild populations. Um, these are often in the form of what you just said, escapees, so fish that escape salmon farms or pens and go into fresh water and uh, reproduce with wild populations. And certainly my colleague Ian Bradbury has published some really strong papers in journals in recent years uh, showing that this has happened on the south coast of Newfoundland. And I think he's, he's followed up resampling juveniles in all these systems and it suggests that these, the juvenile offspring that have a farm parent uh, tend to, or may, may not be surviving as, as often say as, as a wild offspring. Mm. But then outside of escapees, there are other potential things that we see from research done in other countries, such as Norway, Scotland, and I believe Ireland, which suggests negative impacts on wild populations through the transmission of diseases or parasites to wild salmon smolts as they go to sea and pass aquaculture sites, as well as other ecological interactions that are kind of hard to quantify, just such as competition or, or predation issues. That was DFO biologist Nick Kelly. But Mazelle Joe remains in denial, looking for other culprits, seals, climate change, anything but fish farms. It's not clear how much evidence he needs from the south coast or from the Pacific coast where indigenous people have fought for years and have just succeeded in closing down fish farms. Sadly, fish farms aren't the only thing that wild salmon have to worry about. Add gold mines to the list. In fact, uh, uh, a bunch of gold mines being proposed for the island portion of the province. And we talked uh, in the past uh, year about two such developments, one being the Valentine Lake gold mine, um, the mammoth development of open pit gold mines proposed for the height of land in the almost the geographic center of the province. The height of land, uh, meaning the, the highest point, and uh, it's uh, the location of the watershed for the areas to the south, and areas to the north. So the river, uh, the basically this uh, gold mine will be at the, the headwaters of, uh, of many uh, or several rivers, including the most important salmon river in Newfoundland, the Exploits River, the longest river in Newfoundland and, where, and which has the, the biggest fishery. And the concern is that the runoff from this operation uh, will get into the exploits. It will have trace elements, uh, trace elements of some of the most deadly chemicals known to humans, including cyanide. 
the, yes, the water will be processed and will be treated before it's released, but the water is not going to be the way it was when it was, uh, when it was uh, taken from the river. And uh, I don't think that either you or I would want to drink that water after it came out of the, uh, the processing facility containing trace elements of cyanide. But that will uh, be what is released into the, to the Exploits River and to the southwest, another mine proposed for the Island Wards River. That mine, in fact, will be on both sides of the river. It will traverse the river with a bridge, and it's practically on the banks of the, of the Isle of Mort uh, River, which is a scheduled salmon river. A scheduled salmon river meaning that it's, it's uh, noted in federal fisheries regulations as a, as a salmon river and, uh, and worthy of note and protection. So that's what's... Uh, that's what's uh, facing us. It's, uh, it's amazing how little news coverage there has been on the burgeoning gold industry in Newfoundland. As we speak, they're raising money on the Australian stock market to build gold mines in Newfoundland, but uh, we hear so little. And um, as, uh, as Don Ivany of the Atlantic Salmon Federation told us in episode 199. Governments will have a lot to answer for if there's a catastrophe at one of the gold mines to be built. I'm, I'm very sad to say that, uh, I, you know, I really don't believe that, that the public, general public, is, is, is fully aware uh, about, you know, the impacts associated with those mines and, and the potential for them to have such significant impact. And uh, a lot of this has been under the radar at a mine, at a site, so to speak. And, uh, you know, but I'll tell you, if, if in five years time, for example, a mine like the, the, the Marathon mine goes ahead and there's a spill and, 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 you know, major spill and these toxic chemicals end up down the watershed and fish start dying during the recreational salmon fishery, People are going to be asking a lot of questions. People are going to be quite concerned. Well, it's a little bit too late to do to, to be at that particular ta- time. The time to make their concerns known is now. Don Ivany of the Atlantic Salmon Federation. And there's uh, late-breaking news from Marathon Gold regarding the uh, Valentine Lake Gold Mine. The uh, amendments requested by the authorities to their environmental impact statement have been submitted as of January 7th, according to the release. And um, as you may have heard on uh, previous episodes, uh, they, uh, when they submitted their original plan, it it was sent back. Uh, Both the provincial government and the federal government wanted a lot more information on things like impact on caribou. So what Marathon Gold has sent back is uh, additional information on uh, the impacts on, um, on, uh, on caribou and, um, and migration routes, uh, um, as well as um, on the uh, Victoria Lake Reservoir and Victoria Dam effects.
um, those are fairly old um, reservoirs and there's concern about the impact on those um, kind of shaky foundations when all this drilling and uh, um, all this commotion is taking place uh, nearby. Are those dams going to hold up? And if they don't, what is the impact of that? So we'll be, uh, we'll be looking at those amendments to see, uh, to, to see whether they answer the concerns uh, raised about uh, caribou and the other aspects of this, uh, of this plan. So we'll, uh, we'll have uh, more to say about that. Elsewhere around Mi'kma'ki in PEI, two First Nations scored a major win this year. The nations of Lennox Island and Abigwait, which between them have about, um, um, it looks like, uh, I think about 1,200 members uh, between them. They have their very own regional chief representing them at the Assembly of First Nations. So kudos to them for uh, fighting uh, for what um, they thought uh, they needed and deserved. So congratulations about, uh, about uh, being able to... Uh, to, uh, to get that benefit for your two First Nations. It is strange, however, that Newfoundland has to share a regional chief with Nova Scotia. So we have two First Nations in Newfoundland, 13 in Nova Scotia. So you can imagine that um, around the, uh, the chief's table there, um, if Newfoundland wants something and Nova Scotia does not, then the chances of Newfoundland chiefs prevailing is zero. Uh, but consider uh, that these two PEI First Nations have 1,200 members. Halibu itself has 22,000 uh, plus the, um, the thousands uh, in, uh, in Meobigeg. So we have to share a regional chief with Nova Scotia and PEI gets its own for 1,200 members. Something not right about that. Ms. L. Joe has spoken over the years about why Newfoundland should have its own regional chief because the issues in Newfoundland are different than in Nova Scotia. We are unique here in our history and we should have our own regional chief. But that seems to have fallen off the table. PEI has got its regional chief, and from our two Newfoundland chiefs, Ms. Eljo and Halibut Chief Brendan Mitchell, we hear uh, nothing about this uh, this inequity. So it's hard to uh, it's hard to see why that's uh, why that's right. No offense to the people in PEI. Congratulations. In Nova Scotia. We'll be seeing how the moderate livelihood fishery unfolds this year. There are a lot of political changes, and how will they affect the moderate livelihood fishery? There's a new premier, a new government in Nova Scotia, and two new federal ministers to pay attention to. We have a new Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, Mark Miller, who takes over from the hapless Carolyn Bennett. Mark Miller has been able to say the word land back 
in regard to um, many communities um, uh, struggle to uh, to take back uh, their land, notably at um, at Six Nations in uh, Ontario. So, will he be able to say treaty rights for Mi'kmaq fishers? We'll uh, be watching for that. And there's a new fisheries minister, Joyce Murray. She's from BC, and you might think, well. You know, that's unfortunate. What does she understand about uh, Nova Scotia and the Atlantic coast if she's from B.C.? But that may be a blessing when you consider that she takes over from Bernadette Jordan, who was a uh, Nova Scotia MP, who was the last uh, minister of fisheries defeated in the last federal election. She was defeated in part because of the moderate livelihood fishery. She tried to placate the commercial fishers by obstructing the development of the moderate livelihood fishery. It was talking around and around in circles with Bernadette Jordan. Nothing was accomplished. So it seems like she thought that if she, if she could hold off the moderate livelihood fishery, she could save her political position by not uh, annoying the commercial fishers. But uh, it seems that uh, she didn't satisfy them either. And now she's the ex-Minister of Fisheries, having been defeated in the federal election. So maybe Joyce Murray coming from B.C. Uh, and not having her personal uh, political fate at stake can take a an honest treaty approach, respecting treaty rights, respecting the peace and friendship treaties, and without looking over her political shoulder the way that Bernadette Jordan always was. In New Brunswick, there was also a treaty story that we covered in episode 201. Rene Peltier explained how the peace and friendship treaties signed by the Wolastique are the basis for a land claim to 60% of the province of New Brunswick, including um, lands, uh, most of the uh, the western half of uh, of the province, uh, including lands around the uh, what is now known as the St. John River, very important to the Wolastique people. And um, she explained uh, on the episode the the importance of the peace and friendship treaties, which we hear about more, we've heard about more in the moderate livelihood fishery issue, but uh, they're also being uh, used in the Wolastique claim for that land. And here's uh, what she had to say. There are a number of peace and friendship treaties, first of all. Um, there was, isn't just one. Uh, some included both Mi'kmaq and Wolastique. Some were Mi'kmaq only, some had only Wolastique. Some had different terms. Um, We refer to them collectively as the peace and friendship treaties, plural. Um, And uh, I would say sort of at law that when the courts look at the peace and friendship treaties, um, they've not distinguished between Mi'kmaq rights and Wolastique rights. You know, the signatories of the peace and friendship treaties all have the same peace and friendship treaty rights. And um, I understand that that on your, your podcast, you've talked about moderate livelihood and those kinds of issues with respect to the peace and friendship treaties. Um, Another piece that doesn't get talked about very much is the recognition in the peace and friendship treaties of um, the indigenous nations as nations, right? Their their sovereignty in a lot of ways is uh, 
is respected and I think Im implied in a lot of those treaties. I mean, the mere fact of negotiating a nation to nation agreement suggests that the crown understands that it is negotiating with a sovereign nation. Rene Peltier of the law firm Otheus Clear Townsend. And sometime in 2022, we'll uh, maybe see a response from Canada to the Velastoque claim. And um, we'll uh, let you know about that uh, when it happens. So, this is episode 203 of Mi'kmaq Matters, and uh, thanks uh, to all of you who've uh, uh, made it happen. Um, we had a good 2021, a uh, number of good things happened. We were profiled on the national CBC radio show On Reserved. Thanks uh, On Reserved for uh, putting us on the air. Uh, we hosted a uh, debate, uh, an all-candidate uh, debate of the candidates for chief of Halibut First Nation back in October. Uh, many of you uh, were there at uh, Bennett Hall in Cornerbrook or watched it uh, online. Uh, glad to, um, we were able to make that happen. The only all-candidates debate there was in the Halibut election. We had a panel discussion in Stephenville on the issue of the relationship between Halibut and Bay St. George. And uh, that was uh, that was a great event. And uh, thanks uh, for those of you who joined us at um, the Lions Club in Stephenville. And we had uh, lots of election coverage, including the Zoom debate of candidates for the Exploits Ward. And congratulations, Charlene Comden, the new counselor for Exploits. So... More to come in 2022, including a new member of the Mi'kmaq Matters team. And um, we'll tell you more about that in the next short while, as well as uh, some other exciting plans we have in the works. So stay tuned in 2022. Mi'kmaq Matters is brought to you by listener support. And if you could spare us the price of a coffee from Tim's once a week, we'd greatly appreciate it. Go to patreon.com forward slash Mi'kmaq Matters. And you can also make your donations by email transfer, mi'kmaq.matters at gmail.com. Allison Baker is the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Mi'kmaq news and views. I'm Glenn Wheeler, Emson Nogama.